0: Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hello, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. We have a really exciting theme today. Uh, We are celebrating la vie bohème. We are indeed. Can you say that in your French accent?
1: La vie bohème.
0: Every time. (laughs) Just going to have French themes every week. (laughs) From the original Parisian Bohemians of the 1850s to the pre-Raphaelites to the Beats, the Bohemian lifestyle and its artistic output has always held romantic sway over our culture. Today, we'll be talking about what it really means to be bohemian, the best bohemian books, and whether anyone can be a boho in today's world. Are you a boho,
1: Octavia? I mean, we're going to get on to why that's a complicated term. Yes,
0: okay. Well, yeah. But and I'm not a boho. No, you're not no. a boho. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
0: I may also be singing some Rent, I the literally musical. can't wait for that. Yeah, Carrie, la vie bohème. I love the voice of Carrie Plitt. Yes, um, and we have a really exciting
1: guest today, don't we? We do. Um, As usual, our theme is inspired by our author and uh, their brilliant book. And we've got someone especially fabulous on this month, Ema McBride. Um, We're super happy about it. So Ema grew up in County Sligo in Ireland. And in 1994, when she was only 17, she went to London, spent the next three years studying acting at Drama Centre. At 27, she wrote her first book, A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing, which we've talked about at length on the show before. Brilliant book. Um, and published just under a decade later it won uh, in 2013 the goldsmiths prize it was shortlisted for the 2014 folio prize and it won the baileys women's prize for fiction in 2014 so it slayed Um, and today we're going to talk to her it's (laughs) It's Uh, about her second novel the lesser bohemians hence the theme Um, published in september it's about a young irish girl who comes to london to study acting and falls into a relationship with a much older man and
0: I think I can safely say that we both love the book. Adored it, yeah, it was wonderful. And I've given it to a few people as a present as well. So. Me
1: too. Snap. Yeah.
0: Um, we'll also be chatting about the theme and giving book recommendations, so stay tuned for the next hour of Literary Friction. Here is Emer McBride. Emer McBride, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. We've asked you to start with a reading, so uh, could you go ahead, please?
2: Yes. Oh, Thank you for having me on. I'm just going to read uh, from the older actor... Uh, invites the young student home with him for the first time. To flickering lights, shouts of time. How is the chatting up in the end? Pretty good, well done. Thanks, he smiles. Good enough to warrant taking me home. Here it is then, here I am. Oh God, I would, but I'm up in Kentish Town in this bedsit and my landlady... All right, never mind. Sorry, I'm sorry. Don't worry, it's fine. No, it's the truth. It's not that I wouldn't like to and I... Okay. So come back to mine. Oh, I—nearby uh, is it? Ask like distance is the thing. Yeah, five minutes up the road. I feign indecision, but he is so easy in the wait, like he already knows. All right, I say. All right then, he says. Come on, get your coat. In the metal clang night, talking films, we walk. Fish my hand near his, but he only smokes. Maybe he's a murderer. Fuck's sake. He's a fuck, and look at him. He's probably done this lots. But oh, my body opts out and in. Flesh scraping fear against the dew of my brain. So slice my fingertips on every railing to keep by him up the Camden Road. See, not far, he says, brushing round the hedge. Just along, number five, with the broken gate. God, this is your house, I gasp. Floors high and white. Not mine, he laughs, where I rent a bedsit. Up there, first floor, have you lived here long? He mulls his keys. Ten years, give or take. So, since I was seven or eight. Jesus, don't tell me you're as young as that. Why? He shakes his head. Never mind. Then thumbs his fag end back down the crack wild path. No hall lights. Sorry, follow me. I follow up the stairs. Silver key and Let me turn on the light first. Just wait there. So I lull in a dark ocean of motley air as the traffic beyond here calms. Motorbike and lorry alike hold all I know about tonight. To do and then to be. Click and glow and it's a mess, but you might as well come in, he says. Choose him, choose this and now.
0: Thank you, Emer. I sort of want to just spend the next half an hour listening to you read from that book. <laughs> <laughs> did you narrate the audiobook? I did, yeah, yes. Yeah, it makes me think I'd like to read this again with you reading it. It's, <laughs> it's, it, it's a total revelation. It's a really different experience, and it's, it's wonderful to hear it in your voice. So um, as readers um, and listeners will see when they pick up this book or, or listen to it on the radio show, it's, it's written, I think you've called it in an evolution of the style as your first book, mm-hmm. A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing. Um, and I, I was very interested in that. When I read a girl as a half- form thing, I think one of the questions on my mind was, what will she write next? how will she will she stick to the style? will she will she change her style? Will she choose something completely different? and and in a way, you seem to have changed it, but held on to it in some sense. So can you talk about your decision to to do
2: that? Yeah, well, I mean, the purpose of this style originally uh, for a girl as a half- form thing was really about trying to place the reader within the character, so that they would be experiencing what she's going through almost as a physical sensation, rather than looking at her from the outside as an object and judging her actions. Um, And so, you know, it really came from my own acting training, This trying to use this method of drawing in all the different parts of life, physical experience and intellectual thought and, you know, sensation and... You, just, you know, kind of self-doubt, all of those things that happen in one single moment when any, you know, when a person is, is standing anywhere, trying to to make language express all of that rather than the body, the way an actor does, and and making language different in order to encapsulate all of those experiences in, in a single moment, in a single sentence. Um, and, of course, in Girl as a Half-Horn Thing, it, I think a lot of people like you felt that this was you know, very particular to the book and what well, what could happen next. But for me, it seemed, um, you know, just a very useful form, um, a useful mode of expression and that it could be adapted as long as you understood, as long as I understood as a writer, how to make it work differently for a different character. So the book begins at a similar point in language to A Girl is a Half Room Thing. But as, you know, The Lesser Bohemians progresses, the language changes as the girl in this book begins to make connections to the outer world in a way that that first girl never could. The language also begins to connect up and change.
1: I think that's the kind of half formedness of the style in the beginning of The Lesser Bohemians, but very much in The Girl as a Half Formed Thing. For me, it... Is a really accurate representation of the fact that when you're just with your own thoughts, you don't think in full sentences. I certainly don't, you know, yeah. and the way that they scatter around and pull things together. And I, yeah, I loved the way that the that the language evolves in this text. It's that kind of coming of age experience that is told in the story, but then the fact that it's also reflected in the form. It's just so pleasing to read, isn't it? It's really like a, a an embodied reading experience. Um, Talking about bodies, I think one of the things I love about it is it's very sexual and it's very physical. Um, And I wonder, was that something that evolved naturally when you started to write the relationship between these two lovers? Or was it something that you set out with it in your mind that you wanted to write a book about sex as well as everything else?
2: No, it was certainly something that evolved. I hadn't set out to write about that at all. And, you know, I'm still mortified that I wrote a book that has so much sex in it, but that apparently was what I had to write. Um, but as I wrote, I, you know, thought obviously a lot about sex and, and how it's written about and how poorly it's often written about. Um, and even when it's well written about, there's usually such a... Uh, uh, a, 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 a disrupt between the physical life and the internal life of the characters is that it ends up being slightly more pornographic than the writer might intend and it seemed to me that the way to circumvent that was to keep those two elements very close together and to make it very specific to the two people involved in the sex so that it can only be that way with them because of who they are what they bring what what their histories are what their expectations are um and then what's happened between them and how they're both feeling in the room in that moment and how they react to each other and respond to each other all has to be very specific to those people so the reader shouldn't feel sexually involved in in what they are doing sexually
0: john berger I, in his book, G, I don't know if you've ever read it. He, which I think right, he writes about sex very well. And he, he makes some point that sex is both, you know, it's different every time and incredibly specific every time, but there's also something very general and monotonous about the act of sex. And I thought you captured that very well, that there was a, there was a, as you say, a specificity, but it felt relatable in the sense of how we all experience sex for the first time. And there is a sort of, that, that, there's an element of repetition in this novel as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, and you know, because what sex, how it gets done very literally is pretty much the same. There are a few variations, but that's going there and that this is the end point. And we all know that. And so really, if you are going to include it in a book, you have to have a reason. And for me, the characters, this was how, because they are two people who don't know how to talk about themselves or their histories, they don't know how to make a connection in 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 that other way, in an emotional way first. This is how they talk to each other. This is how they learn about each other. How they end up becoming close to each other is through sex. So they arrive at intimacy from the opposite direction. So, you know, sex is, is the way into it rather than the fullest expression of it.
1: Which I think is something very common to people having their first experience of love, you know, like... In that young age, certainly it rings true for me that sex comes first because you don't have the emotional intelligence as an 18-year-old girl that you do as an adult woman. Um, and I, th- I thought the, f- the, the way that Stephen, who obviously is quite a lot older, mm-hmm. but he's so childlike, like you say, he doesn't have the vocabulary. Yeah. So they, the fact that they communicate on this common level, Yeah but coming from either side of the line almost. I yeah. think that makes me, I just, I, I thought it was such a true depiction of that. And, you know, I wanted to ask you also about dysfunction because essentially they're two very dysfunctional people, yeah. if you want to take a kind of view from the outside. Yeah. And yet they, they have this extraordinary experience, which is quite redemptive. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask again, if, if, if you had that in mind or if it just developed out of their relationship,
2: Well, you know, I wanted, I suppose, to try and write as truthfully as I could, and I think there is a real problem in the general atmosphere about sex and sexual relationships at the moment, which, in which women are expected to perform a version of themselves, which is always desirable and perfect and impenetrable, apart from at the moment of penetration, and and so i you know i invented two characters who are damaged who are and they and it is through that that you get to see the cracks in in those those tropes about sexuality that we are you know slammed up against constantly and because of that you you know i was able to write about sexual vulnerability and about the difficulty of what happens if the, if the emotional life and the sexual life become completely separated? Mm. The difficulties that causes in, in people's lives.
0: It's interesting what you said about performing a version of the self, because um, both of these characters are actors as well, mm. and they are either training or are paid to perform different versions of themselves or, or different versions of other people. Were you thinking about that consciously? When you're writing these characters.
2: Yeah because you know obviously as a deeply serious novelist (laughs) writing about drama school is not an inviting prospect (laughs) Um, but actually the I think the idea of the actor of the, the sort of the symbol of the actor is someone who we all know wears their inside quite far from their outside was interesting and it was something that suited the themes of the book And because the two characters also, although they're because there's a 20 year age gap between them, they they they're sort of carnival mirrors of each other. And they 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 reflect back different versions of of what they were or what they might become and also different versions of other people in their lives. Um, And that just seemed to tie in very easily with with performers.
1: There was a description in in the text um, of the way when the the lead, Eileen, the lead female um, protagonist, describes the way that theatre operates in our lives in a a specific way. And she says that stage logic is different from reality and a place to tell the stories I could never tell, which really stuck with me. Um, And I wonder, do you think that those stories can be told on stage and not in literature? Or do, do you think that the stage can function in the same way as the novel, almost.
2: Well, I think, you know, I think obviously the forms have different requirements and those need to be fulfilled. But I, I also think that we are in a great turning point in in the life of literature and, and lots of artistic forms, actually, at the moment. And I think, you know, the, those gaps that were so wide between them I think it's useful to close them down now and see how they can inform each other, how the solutions from different form can help you solve it. Um, And, you know, and certainly, you know, my acting training is the reason why I write the way that I write. Um, And I think if I had done a creative writing course and learned all the rules of how you should write a book, I would have written two very different novels. And I think it's a good thing I think it's it's important to infuse new life into into the form um you know because it's very fashionable to talk about how the novel is dead and I think a particular kind of novel is dead but there's there's plenty of room there left for for those who are willing to try something new with it.
0: And hearing you read at the beginning made me think how performative this novel is um do you think of it as something that's meant to be read aloud or do you like the idea of it being read aloud?
2: I do like the idea of it being read aloud and and I certainly read aloud a lot when I was writing it so that was sort of inevitable um, and I think that's common with a lot of writers who come from performing backgrounds, you know, they it's a similar thing, you see language in a much more three-dimensional way than if you look at it in a writing in just a literary way, you see how it stands up in its feet and moves around the room and it's not just about form, form is there for you know to carry content not the other way around could you see this
1: as a screenplay or as a stage play
2: I think I don't think it would work in the theatre just because it's very panoramic because it's so much a love letter to London and walking the streets of London it would be hard for that to be recreated on the stage but I think it would be a really good screenplay and there was certainly you know because I was writing this for six years before girl as a half from thing was published so in the depths of despair I do remember at one point thinking maybe I should stop writing this as a novel and 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 just write it as a screenplay and so I think right from the beginning it seemed to me very filmic uh, in its composition
1: And picking up on the thing about the streets of London, this is the point where Carrie and I disagreed, which doesn't happen very often. Mm. But um, I found that incredibly evocative and I spent many years living in Camden when I was about the same age as Eilidh and having sort of some similar experiences. So everything about the way the two of them are living in that space spoke to some very deep, you know, meaningful memories for me. And Mm. so I felt the presence of Camden so evocative and sadly, you know, Camden's very different these days than it was then. But for Carrie, Carrie, you didn't pick up on well, it in the same way. To, to be fair to myself, I didn't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think it wasn't that I didn't think it was evocative. I felt that even though you know I I know London well, so I could see when you have these wonderful scenes where they sort of walk down the streets and you can picture them on Tottenham Court Road and then going up Gower Street and and all of these things. But um, the the specificity seemed to me a sort of projected emotional specificity rather than a specificity of place so I think maybe if somebody didn't know Camden they wouldn't really they get a real sense of it in her world but not necessarily a sense of it in a more general way
2: well um, I, mean, I think actually both of those things seem to kind of follow what I was trying to do you're because a very
0: good negotiator
2: yeah politics has lost a, a diplomat no um but I th- I mean, because I think it is, for me, it's a love letter to London, absolutely, and to that very specific London of the mid-90s. But it's also, and I was very careful about this when I was writing the book, it is an an evocation of my memory of it. It is not, you know, you know, when Joyce was writing Ulysses and he was constantly writing back to his brother asking him for details so he would have it all hammered out exactly as it was. And this is not that. This is you know, if Camden was exploded tomorrow and they tried to recreate it from my memory, that's what they would get, not the Camden of the 90s, but the Camden that I knew in the 90s, which is not the same as the Camden everyone knew in the 90s. Um, uh, and and so I never did any research. I never went back. Well, you know, I went back to walk around, but I never went to look up, was that shop really there on that date in that place? And... Um, um, but also all the details about London and that that's about her becoming part of the world and that was really important whereas there are no geographical details in A Girl as a half form Thing because I wanted her to feel you know outside of the world and inside the reader. This is very much about someone who is managing to get their feet on the ground.
0: Yeah and London in this book feels like such an essential part of her growing up Um not yeah. only the people she meets there, but just the space of the city of all of the things that you're exposed to yeah, when you live in the city. Exactly. A place like and that. for
2: her the this the, the anonymity and the freedom and the potential for things to happen, you know, and she's because in common with the with the girl as a half form thing, she's someone who is not she's not a passive female character. She's not someone who's waiting for life to happen. She's out trying to do things and pursue things and failing and succeeding, but you know, she is she is coming for life
1: yeah very much so and you get a sense also of that the challenges of coming to the city that the fact that you come to the big city with yeah this desire to grow up and find out who you are but then also she suffers like everyone who's ever lived in london does mm-hmm. you know housing problems and the the sort of the relationships that are born of necessity yeah. in urban living that can be so wonderful but they can also be very strange and yeah you know, you, you get thrown together with people in all sorts of configurations. I grew up here, and I still find that happens because yeah. urban life is so um, complex and rich and and yeah. hard in many ways. But it, it contrasts so nicely with the softness of the intimacy that they do achieve. Yeah, you know, it's a lovely um, balance. And so I'm being really gushy today. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's I fine. I loved it.
2: So <laughs> please continue. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, Imer, I'd, I'd love to hear you talk more about. It took you nine. Years to write it this novel, and as you say, you were writing it before. A girl is a half-porn <laughs> Freudian slip, there a girl is Oh half my God! Porn. Is that what you said? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> that
2: is amazing. My mind, into um, Carrie's deep... my day. Uh... <laughs> That's going to be the sequel. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um it
0: it took a it took a while for you to get a girl is a half formed thing published mm. um which which you did write very quickly but yes. um but then it was a while before you found a home for it and yeah. in that time you were writing this book we're all crying we're still crying
2: today's <laughs> <laughs> um, best so Freudian can, you, slip.
0: can <laughs> you just can you talk a bit about wh- how did this form what what different shapes did it take over those nine years and and when were you most excited about it? When were you depressed about it? What was the sort of emotional landscape of, well, yeah, I mean, it was, of the process? It
2: was such a different experience because, you know, Girl was six months and then then I didn't look at it again for another nine years, whereas this was really every day for nine years. And um, I didn't write at all for three years after I finished Girl. And then I moved uh, back to Ireland for my husband's work and I hadn't really wanted to leave London, Um and so I was very homesick for it. And that was, I started to think about London and that London that I had known as a 17-year-old in the 90s. And that was the beginning, really, of the book. Um, and I think I, I took about a year to do the first draft. And I really felt almost like a debut novel again, because all the muscles had wasted and I had to start again. Um, and so I remember finishing the first draft and I gave it to my husband to read, who was a very good first reader with Girl. And he read it. And he just went, "This is rubbish," <laughs> um, which, you know, obviously led to some marital <laughs> discord for some time. But he was right, of course. And I went back and and started again. But I suddenly understood what the book was about, and and really, that first draft was getting rid of the last dregs of a girl as a half-formed thing, I think, and realizing that although they both featured girls, this would have to be a very different kind of girl. for her to be able to have other kinds of experiences Um, and that I was going to have to write someone who was much more vulnerable in a way but also much more open to life Um, and so it just it took a very long time for me to understand what it was I was writing about and And the nuances of that relationship, you know, I really, there were, at one point it was 800 pages long because every time anyone lifted an eyebrow, I had to write a sentence about it because I had to understand what exactly what was going on in that room between those two people. But once I had understood that, once I knew who they were and what was happening between them and what would happen throughout the book, I was able to cut all of that because I knew that if I understood it... The reader would understand it as well, and they didn't need all this sort of agonised detail. Um, and and then it took a long time to get the language right as well. Um, to get to you know, there was a part of me as I mean, it was really after the success of Girl that I finally got the language down for lessers, and it was tricky because you know there's a lot of people saying oh well it will be terrible if she writes the same thing or oh it'll be terrible if she doesn't write the same thing and realizing that I wasn't I was doing neither that I was doing something that was a much more subtle shift that it wasn't really an evolution of that and of making the language express a different consciousness and a different life but also a very different journey and how the language then changed again from girl because you know girl all the language falls out from under her at the end it is a person who is coming to pieces and this is a person who is coming together and that's why you know the the books are very connected to each other and that's why you know eileen the lesser bohemians dreams about the girl from a girl is a half-formed thing because those that connection is there but the life that that comes from it is is different and the language is different mm-hmm. it takes a long time to work that out
0: <laughs> and we've been talking a lot about Eileen's voice, but one of the things that really surprised me about this book was that we hear from Stephen, Mm. um, and I didn't expect that. And we not only hear from Stephen, but we hear from Stephen in a very different, much more conventional voice. So was that something that you always wanted to include?
2: I I was really not something that I had thought about, and it originally popped up in a very short paragraph and then just became something else. And um, because it's... In some ways, it's also part of her story because the you don't ever inhabit him in the way that you inhabit her. The reader sort of inhabits her life and her body and her experience. And what they know of him is what he tells. So this whole passage in which he talks about his life is also not only about the, the information that he's imparting, but the act of telling and for her, the act of listening and and how you make a connection between another human being when all you have to go on is what they say and how they choose to describe what it is they're 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 talking about. Um, and, you know, and I think it was also a little bit of a game for me, a sort of game with the 19th century novel, especially the 19th century Russian novel, which is why he's reading The Devils uh, by Dostoevsky when they first meet. And he's reading very specifically the Confessions, Stavrogan's Confession, um, which is about uh, a man confessing to having raped a twelve-year-old girl, and um, and I I liked the idea of of how that uh, the, the confession had functioned in that book that it was something that had been Dostoevsky had put in in order to flesh out more humanly that character so he wasn't just a sort of political tool and then had been persuaded to take out of the book. Um, and it's now only it's only ever published as an appendix and I was kind of intrigued by the idea of there being this almost a novella inside the novel which if you took it out the novel would still work without it but with it you you gain a much deeper understanding of that character
1: yeah it it felt like a a gift actually reading it it was like a really it was like an exciting discovery inside the book don't you think it was kind of like you said I wasn't expecting it either and th- and then you come a- a- upon it. So spoilers, anyone who hasn't read the book yet. <laughs> <but> <laughs> Just ruined We won't tell you what thing. he says. We won't tell you what he says. But no, the idea that also sometimes we only we're only able to pull ourselves together in the telling of our story yeah. is is something that I think you see on, on the stage a lot, obviously. Yeah. In, um, and in this text, very much that sense that the way that you deliver yourself to somebody else. And in, in that moment in the book, he says things to her that he's never said to anyone else. And yeah. you get this this context, yeah. I'm babbling. <laughs> you're not babbling. Um, and what do you think you're
0: going to write next? Do you uh, have a sense? <laughs> have you started already?
2: I have started. I swore blind that I would t- do nothing. You know, the last three years have been a bit mad. And I swore that once I handed this in, I would do nothing else. But uh, within about two weeks i had started the the next novel so i know what it is um and yes i'm hoping it's not going to take nine years to to work it all out
0: (laughs) it sounds like you want to let it um sit in your mind before you talk about what
2: it is it's yeah it's it's too soon it's because i don't really know i have a taste for of it but i i don't really know yet and i don't want to i don't want to ruin it
0: Mm -hmm. How, how did the ideas for your novels come to you? Is it, is it like a taste? I like that idea. Yeah,
2: it's, it is definitely this sort of feeling and inkling and impression. There's some moment or smell or something that I see out of the corner of my eye. Every time I've tried to think about a plot or characters that would be interesting and important to write about, it compl- it just dies inside me because there is no, there's, there's no, nothing exciting about it, to be honest. Whereas when I when I start with that, I think that this can go anywhere, anywhere. And of course, you can go anywhere for a long time and fall flat on your face or it can all work out. And that's that's the fun of it, really. If I uh, if I knew how it would end, why would I bother beginning?
0: Emer McBride, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. You've taken on Joyce. You've taken on Dostoevsky and, <laughs> and you've done it with a plum. Um, and the, the novel is called The Lesser Bohemians and it's been published now. Read it. Thank you. So this is Literary Friction. We are back after our interview with Emer McBride and inspired by her book, The Lesser Bohemians. Our theme is uh, very creatively about bohemians.
1: Can you say the word bohemian one more time? Bohemian? Thank you. Bohemian? Bohemian? Yeah, I dig it. Am I doing it wrong? No, are you no, just, no.
0: I'm just, just saying it too much. Yeah. Okay. Okay, well, what is a bohemian? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I have to admit that I had a general sense of what a bohemian was before we did the show, but I... I think if you'd asked me to describe it, I don't know if I would have been
1: able to. Well, contemporary conceptions of bohemianism are so problematic.
0: Yes. That's part of the issue. So let's get into that. But first, let's, let's talk about what it actually means. So um, the OED definition, which is always useful, is a gypsy of society, one who either cuts himself off or is by his habits cut off from society for which he is otherwise fitted, especially an artist, literary man or actor, who leads a free vagabond or a regular life, not being particular as to the society he frequents and despising conventionalities generally. I mean, that's quite bad English. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that comes from. Interestingly, uh, Bohemian was actually a pejorative term for Romani gypsies who were um, apocryphally believed to be from Bohemia. Um, and in the 19th century in Paris, artists became uh, started hanging out in... Uh, Romani communities. So even at the beginning of this idea it first of all has racism like serious racism, serious um, racism. that still exists in Europe today but also cultural appropriation which
1: I think is really interesting
0: uh, that that the, the Romanies somehow get erased from this formula.
1: Yeah absolutely and it's that bizarre I mean, we've done a show on Outsiders before, but this—the the idea of the Bohemian brings us right back to that because it is all about being in opposition to social norms and the social norms that become restrictive and our conflation of creativity with living in opposition, which is also problematic in and of itself. But yeah, it's cultural appropriation. And the trouble is with all of the things that people think of as being boho now, like boho chic, and white people in Native American headdresses and bindis at festivals, you know, it's it's the same problem writ large, you know. And the thing I find really interesting about it is the annihilation of counterculture that we're going through right now because counterculture is becoming mainstream. Mm. There's nowhere to go, you know. All of the things that were considered bohemian in the past have become now appropriated by the convention, social convention, especially in the West. Um, Yeah, things like Burning Man Festival. Yeah, festivals Um, in general, you know. And the fact that festivals have themselves been infiltrated by capitalism, you know, um, woe betide the way of Glastonbury these days compared to the the times of the past. Yes. Although I, I might push back on that
0: a little because I think everyone always complains about the fact that their generation is somehow missing out on some wonderful experience that um, is, I think that is true about the commodification of our culture and the commodification of a distinctive life or a different life. But I, I don't know if that's true. I think there are still ways to live outside of society. But I think the way that bohemianism has been wrapped up into popular culture means that you need to choose a different path than, yeah. than those kind of symbols that used to actually mean that you'd at least made a choice to live outside of cultural norms.
1: Well, this is the thing. This is like the the, the nub of the whole thing is that the traditional concept of the bohemian was somebody who lived in an amoral way who rejected the morals of society and it was a very it was wrapped up if you could leave behind the racist um cultural appropriation element of it it was wrapped up in a political statement as much as anything else that the devotion to the art form at the risk of everything else and you know in in la La bohème the opera puccini's opera it's about a, a young poet who falls for this woman mimi and you know, it's a tubercular story of tragic, uh, romantic, you know, loss. But really, central to the whole plot is the fact that he's impoverished and he lives with his friends, who are also writers, and they are at no point hoping to become wealthy. That's not the that's not the thing. It's the acceptance of this bohemian lifestyle in the garret in Paris, where they're all dying and it's cold, and her tiny hand is frozen, which is the famous quote from the from the story. Um, and and if you think about like the bohemian figures of literary history, you know, you think about Kerouac, you think about Baldwin, James Baldwin, Burroughs, you know, these really kind of virulently oppositional figures in some ways. And then you think about boho chic today and you think about the fact that you go to any shop in Notting Hill and can buy a pair of, I don't know what, like sheepskin slippers and people can feel that that's a statement of bohemianism. That worries me and bothers me. And I also think, When I was looking up things for the show, I came across um, this book, which kind of sums it all up a a bit, I think. Uh, Bobo's in Paradise, the new upper class and how they got there by David Brooks, which Mm. was written in 2000, which I haven't read. Um, But he's the man who termed the term, spoonerism, coined the term, termed the coin, uh, Bobo, which is a portmanteau of bourgeois and bohemian. And that's kind of what I'm getting at. Like That's the thing that I find uncomfortable. So when you ask me if I'm a boho at the beginning of the show... You, know? Are you a
0: bobo
1: oh gross I mean probably though that's the, 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 the <laughs> sad thing you know like yeah I suppose I probably do have bohemian aspirations in that I'm a writer and I have no intention of of pursuing money as my main goal in life but at the same time I come from privilege I could never possibly say that I was living in an amoral way you know
0: Yeah. Well, let's get back to the history of of bohemianism, because I think this will become contextualized more. So, first of all, as we were saying, La Bohème really brought, uh, I think, when people think of bohemian, that's what they think of. But actually, um, the term bohemianism first caught fire with um, Henri Mougier, I
1: think you would
0: say, um, play and the love you poem. Cool,
1: you
2: did it. It's beautiful. <laughs>
0: um which was published in 1851 which was adopted um into the By play. Yeah. And uh I think that it's it's so specific to its time. And when we talk when we talk about bohemianism, we still kind of think of Paris in the 1850s. Absolutely. But what's so interesting is that first of all, bohemianism um can be mapped on to many different cultures um very very easily and you know bohemian movements have inspired each other so the beats were very inspired by walt whitman and his gang of friends who were very inspired by yeah you know the the um the pre-raphaelites were that had very particular ideas about what they were trying to do which was related to this idea of poor artists living in a counterculture and um and there's something there's – some, I think the reason why it's so enduring is because it's both very specific but also very generalized in terms of what it represents mm. um, and because it's very romantic too. Um, that's it. And, and that's problematic in its own way. Um, I think the musical Rent is um, my main uh, <laughs> bohemian touchstone. and, <laughs> um, and but, Never but, but, change, Carrie. Never change. But, but what's interesting about Rent is um, – sentimentalizes and fetishizes poverty and AIDS. I think it's a little more complex than that. And I think that's partially because Jonathan Larson, the composer, was um, himself sort of in this world and and there during the AIDS epidemic in New York and blah, 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 set in the early 90s. But, um, you know, all through its history, this kind of lifestyle, even when it's written about by the people who were living in it, there's a real sense of... um, it, it it can so easily be fetishized and it can so easily be displaced as as something else um, and and taken by popular culture and by the wealthy and made into something completely different. I mean, there's a, I was just in Muir Woods recently in uh, right outside San Francisco and they had these pictures. There was this Bohemian society uh, at, which was a group of men who were not Bohemian at all. They were not artists. They were sort of men about town, but they fancied themselves artists of artistic persuasion and Mm. they would have these crit they they had pictures they set up this giant buddha in the middle of redwood trees and had these elaborate picnics um and called themselves the bohemian society and i think uh, what you're i guess what i was trying to get at earlier is what you're talking about now has always happened um it's manifested itself in a slightly different way in the modern day but ever since bohemian existed as a term it was already being appropriated and it was already being sort of diluted from from what it was originally meant to mean and and you could argue that this play which I haven't read so maybe this isn't true but it, it's already kind of fetishizing that lifestyle and it's already making it um, romantic and appealing to the
1: masses. I think you nailed that point to the wall my friend. <laughs> yes um, and actually that brings up something else which is the elitism that's always kind of associated with the term as well, because. Like you say, because it's a lifestyle that can be fetishized, it's also one that people who self-identify as Bohemians want to protect. And obviously the term Bohemian is widely appealing even to the upper classes who want to appropriate it in their society with their weird Buddha and blah, blah, blah. Um, so it becomes this commodity, but also the... And I suppose this goes back to the origination of the term in uh, kind of application to Romani Gypsy communities the transience of a bohemian community is central to it as well. Like the fact that it's not fixed to a particular uh, geographical place. And these are communities that can move because they're free from ties. They're free from the ties of com- conventional society, like marriage and children and um, state structures and stuff. And that, I mean, that always makes me think of um, A movable Feast, you know, by yeah. um, dear old Hemingway, which is the narrative of his bohemian life in Paris which again is already a fetishized existence that is kind of slightly self-conscious and performative. Um, or Just Kids, which we talk oh, about
0: all the I time know, on, on this show, which I which seems very earnest to me. But I think there is still, you know, why do people love Just Kids? It's partially because they want to imagine themselves as starving artists. Exactly. Roaming around the halls of the Chelsea Hotel. Whereas
1: a really good com- comparison to that is Baudelaire's Flowers of Evil, Les Fleurs du Mal, which is this book of poetry, which is not romantic I mean it is I suppose but it's so angry and that's the thing he with his flaneur which is a different the flaneur is a different a different figure from the bohemian because the flaneur is inherently bourgeois so I guess the combination of the flaneur and the bohemian gives rise to the bobo um but Baudelaire is someone that people identify with bohemianism a lot and his fascination with um the underbelly of society and prostitutes and dive bars and, and observing. Whereas I think the bohemian lives rather than watches. I think that's the difference in some ways. The flaneur is an observer and the bohemian is balls deep in everything that they're espousing. But Baudelaire's political fury ties in with the sense of bohemianism. And that's actually, I get from Nell Zink's writing today, um, Nicotine, which is the one that's just it's everywhere at the moment, it's a, it's a great book, but. Her characters in that, particularly, are kind of the contemporary bohemians, and she writes about them with such a wry, arched eyebrow, you know, because she's already pointing out the fact that they're self-perpetuating an elitist, and they will do everything they can to protect their interesting nature, you know. Yeah.
0: But don't you think it's so hard to be earnest in society today?
1: I think as the American. <laughs>
0: But, you know, you always everything has to be satirized. Nobody can just, uh, you know, I think maybe one of the reasons why it's so hard to be bohemian now is because that kind of declaration of earnestness is really looked down upon in our society. And there isn't really a space for it.
1: No, because we are post, 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 postmodern and the world has already eaten itself too many times. The time for sincerity has passed. I think it's coming back. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I live in a state of permanent satire. Yeah.
0: Um, funny you should, just a, a side note, it's funny you should say balls deep because it does seem quite male, the bohemian lifestyle. Hey, girl. And um, we, you know, have to bring up gender politics on this show. But, Always. Uh, I think, you know, it's partially because it's it is actually a real privilege to be able to be a bohemian to not just be a poor person but to be poor by choice and to choose to live your life the way that you want to absolutely and I think that's one of the reasons we we have mentioned some female authors you just mentioned Nell Zink um Patti Smith etc but many 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 of when when I was doing research of this show when people talk about bohemian writers they're almost always male
1: Mm, I agree I've got a quote actually by Arthur Miller about the Chelsea Hotel, which, of course, was a pinnacle of bohemian existence in New York in the 70s and 80s. Um, And onwards, I think, he says, this hotel does not belong in America. There are no vacuum cleaners, no rules, and no shame. Mm. Which is, again, a, a great example of what the bohemian lifestyle stands against and what conventional society was considered to kind of carry. Which, again, I just feel like these days it's more... Everything is more permeable, everything is more amorphous, you know, the rules are less stringent. Like, not, not getting married, for example, if you live with your partner these days, it's not a bohemian act at all, it's just a different choice yeah, that you so can make. So, maybe it's a
0: more positive thing. There's less of a need for bohemians as we've traditionally defined them.
1: Yeah. It's worth thinking about. I'm not sure if it's right.
0: I just like to be positive. I know you do. Okay, let's talk about our favorite Bohemian books. Do you want to start, Octavia?
1: I will. I'm coming in with a big, uh, a, a female heavyweight Bohemian, thankfully, um, who I've talked about before in the show, Anais Nin. But she's, um, she's kind of the perfect figure for this, this theme really. Um, she's so deeply associated with the values of Bohemian living. She's become a bit of a like Instagram Bohemian these days. You can see her quotes all over boho girls you know self-identifying pages or whatever which is a bit of a shame but um yeah she, she spent a lot of time in Paris and she was surrounded by loads of bohemian figures she was in a long relationship with Henry Miller um but knew, knew a whole bunch of them and the thing her greatest literary legacy are her journals which she started when she was 11 and she finished when she was 74 and at the year of her death so they span this huge amount of time and they are fearless and honest and intellectual and unabashedly sovereign and in opposition to a lot of things a lot of social norms although she did marry twice and blah blah, blah. she had many lovers though and she had uh, this kind of voracious sexuality that was very much at odds with kind of what was going on, um, and bisexual tendencies and all this kind of stuff, um, and actually, really interestingly, when Henry Miller was working on Tropic of Cancer in Paris, it was Nin who supported him financially, so quite quite an really unusual figure, yeah. And I've read several of her journals, but they're, they're sixteen um volumes or something, and uh, and I'm trying to go through them. She had a long didactic relationship with Otto Rank, who was her analyst. There's a lot of psychoanalysis in there. So in the figure of Nin, there is both the like, the freedom of bohemianism to go against the grain, but also the privilege of the bourgeois kind of st- status. Um, but yeah, I would fully recommend dipping into any of her work. Her erotic stories are also brilliant and short and easy. But her diaries um, particularly are, mm. yeah, beautiful.
0: A few people have given me Nin books and I've never actually read them, so... Yeah, maybe this
1: will be my impetus to. I think they, I think they don't draw people in really. But once you're in, you're in. Yeah, because I've picked them up and read the first sentence and thought, mm. it's quite dated now. Mm. Her her style actually, interestingly. But I think if you give them, give them six pages in one sitting and you'll be in. But don't try if, if you've only got time to read two or three. Good good advice.
0: Quite excited about that. Um, favorite Bohemian literature. I well, first of all I wanna say that I think um, the title of Emer McBride's book is a good one and I think makes a very persuasive point that um, it sort of asks the question, what about those bohemians that aren't successful? What if what about those actors who are slugging away playing soldier number two on stage and who and who do have to worry about the bills and who are trying to make art but never achieve the sort of ends that bohemians are meant to achieve. Um, mm. And that's a very interesting question. And and you could argue that th- there's some, not something more noble, but it seems more pure in terms of um, that kind of choice mm. and lifestyle.
1: More integrity. Yeah, mm. I agree.
0: And um, in terms of my favorite book, I, I wanted to talk about Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman, uh, who Good. came up a lot when I was looking at bohemian ideas on the internet, uh, and bohemian figures. And he was, Walt Whitman is often called one of the first bohemians in, uh, America. He, he got a lot of ideas from his Parisian predecessors and he hung out with a a group of artists in Faf's Saloon in Manhattan, which I love. (laughs) Um, his sexuality has been debated, but it's pretty clear he was queer in, in some way. Uh, And just a very interesting man. He self-published his, collection, Leaves of Grass, um, and his brother said it it wasn't worth publishing. He then continued to re-edit it and rewrite it his entire life. So it's very hard, um, you know, it's very hard to talk about one version of of all of the poems, the most famous of which is probably Song of Myself, because there are so many different versions of it. But even that, I think, is interesting, speaks to a side the, the fragmentation of self and the fragmentation of language that is so much a part of his theme. But I read this. um, I read Leaves of Grass in college in an American literature course, and it just sort of blew me apart. Um, Mm. Speaking of fragmentation, it's so raw um, and rich and both gentle and angry and uh, alive. I just wrote a lot of adjectives. (laughs) (laughs) Alive, bold, erotic. (laughs) I mean, it's true. Yeah. And actually, and was banned. came under heavy criticism because of the erotic nature of the Mm. poetry full of love for humanity and just thinking deeply about what the self is and what it is in relation to the world, both humanity, but also the natural world, um, the, the sort of universe. So it, it has bold
1: aspirations and it's just an experience. Yeah. It meets them. I love that book too. And interestingly, that was a huge influence to Garcia Lorca, um, who, who wrote, Po- a book of poetry when he was in new york called poet in new york but walt whitman was this uh emblem of hope for him because he was also a queer gay man and you know it's a beautiful once you read leaves of grass if you read some of the *Lorca* as well it's amazing right
0: mm. well we will be back in a little while with some book recommendations with emir mcbride but first here is some music is Literary Fiction on NTS. We are back with Emer McBride and Emer. we've asked you to recommend a book so can you can you tell us what you've brought in today?
2: Well the book that I cannot stop thinking about and talking about is Martin John by Anna Canis-Gofield which is utterly extraordinary. I think she is one of the most interesting, important, adventurous writers working today and um, the book is she's Irish, Canadian. The book is set in London and is really about um, a sex offender and and the sex offender's mother. And it's very bleak um, and very visceral and also incredibly funny in the darkest possible way. And the writing is extraordinary. I mean, she 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 lifts a form and she she works it the whole way through, and it and it really works really, really beautifully in this kind of incredible circular prose that is completely addictive. Um, And it's the kind of book that you just think, oh, my God, I'm really going to hate this. And and then the minute you start to read, understand that something very, very wonderful is going on there. Uh, So I would heartily, heartily recommend it to everyone.
0: Was it published recently? I haven't heard of her.
2: Yes, uh, it was published by And Other Stories earlier in the year um it was also up for the is it the Giller or the giller in canada uh, where she lives it was shortlisted for that um but yeah i mean i think it's a, a quiet book publicity wise and it shouldn't be it should be something that people should be roaring at each other about in the street
1: brilliant
0: octavia do you want to give your recommendation
1: yeah absolutely i am um I, well, I was going to cheat and recommend Shirley Jackson, which Anna Jean suggested, uh, uh, who we had on last month, um, because I've just started it and I'm obsessed with it. But seeing as she recommended it, I'm going to say something else, which is um, Fear of Flying by Erica Jong, which is a book from the 70s that a friend gave me for my birthday. And I've just started it. And um, it's fabulous. It opens with the quote, Bigamy is having one husband too many. Monogamy is the same. Um, so that's the kind of book it is. Um, and the first chapter is called En Route to the Congress of Dreams or the Zipless Fuck. Um, and it opens with a line, which I just think is brilliant. There were 117 psychoanalysts on the Pan Am flight to Vienna, and I'd been treated by at least six of them. So there you go. I think from that you can tell what kind of a yeah. book it's going to be. But it's, it, her voice is, is I, I mentioned to my mom, I was reading it actually, and she said, oh God, that's probably really dated, you know, now. Um, and she read it when it was published, and so I think it was 73. Uh, and actually, yeah, you know, some of the politics, the feminism in it is a bit old-fashioned and a bit essentialist, but the core of what, of what she's talking about is the same. It's the same experience of um, trying to engage with the social conventions that have held women back for centuries, make them your own, and, and like find your way through those things. But she is just so funny. It's this very witty, it's very American voice, I, f- I find it to be. like, Yeah. So there we go. I'm excited about it. I'm going to finish it. I'm going away tomorrow. So I'm going to read it, the rest of it in two days flat. That's great to hear.
0: I heard her read. A, no, it wasn't read. It was tell a story at the moth, which are those oh, storytelling the moth is events. Great. And no. I found her interminably boring. No. <laughs> really? Yeah. So I, really? yeah, I, I, maybe it was the wrong story or something, but I really just did. not I, it did oh, not wow. make me want to read Fear of Flying, but now you've, you've, Made me want well, to read it. I'll so. let you
1: know. I mean, maybe she's one of those rare things that we a writer who can't, like, actually verbally, you know, in live 3D. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't do think that's to... that rare, is it? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You are the exception, Emer. <laughs> um,
0: okay, so for my recommendation, I am going to cheat a bit. I um, recommend a novel called The Vegetarian by um, Korean author Han Kang. Wow. Um, it it is cheating because we had her translator Deborah Smith on our last show to talk about translation but at the time I had not yet read The Vegetarian I'd only read her other novel Human Acts um, her other novel that's been translated into English and I read The Vegetarian and I like that even better and I just want to tell everyone about it so I'm going to tell everyone about it Um, the premise behind the book is it's a Korean woman who one day just decides to be a vegetarian the uh, the 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 various people and things that are affected in her life from that decision. Um, her Incredible prose is so—it's—it's it's both. I don't know if you—you you agree, Imar, but it's sort of both brutal and kind of dreamy. There's something. Yeah,
2: there's a very strange sort of dreamlike quality to it. But but like a nightmare on the turn. Yeah. Um, it's very, and I think the translation is a real work of art. I think Deborah Smith is—you know—she's in a league of her own
0: yeah I agree so everyone should read The Vegetarian thank you Ima thank you so that's all the time we have for today thanks to Ima McBride whose book The Lesser Bohemians is out now and to Eddie Knight for production and music
1: Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and on nts.live you can also check us out on Facebook Twitter and Instagram please interact with us we love to hear from you yes we do
0: really love to hear from you Loads and loads. as usual. We'll be back next month with another show. Until then I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright and this is Literary Friction.